Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. As we release another talk from the RipperCon Jack the Ripper and True Crime Convention from Baltimore, Maryland in the USA. This time around, it's Professor Charles Tomosa with Forensic Time Machine looking backwards. Robert Anderson will do the proper introduction of Professor Tomosa as he discusses modern-day forensic document examination and how these techniques could or could not be applied to such items as the letters from Jack the Ripper and the Maybrook Diary. And he also touches on Patricia Cornwell's work on her preferred suspect, the artist Walter Sickert, during the question-and-answer portion of the presentation. At the time of this release, I'm still awaiting the PowerPoint slideshow that accompanied this talk, and we'll link to it on this episode's podcast page when it arrives. But not having the slides really shouldn't affect your enjoyment of this talk, so let's go ahead and turn it over to Robert Anderson, introducing Charles Tumosa. Our first speaker this morning is Charles Tumosa, speaking on the forensic time machine, looking backwards. Charles Tumosa received his PhD in chemistry from Victoria Tech Blacksburg in 1972. He worked at the Philadelphia Police Laboratory from 1971 to 89, examining evidence in crimes of violence. He retired there as head of the criminalistics lab in 1989 and went to work at the Smithsonian Institute. At the Smithsonian... An institution. (laughs) My wife said she always wanted to put me in an institution. (laughs) The day's not over. At the Smithsonian Silver Hill facility, he set up an analytic laboratory and gradually morphed into a research position examining cultural materials and determining ways to preserve them. He retired from the Smithsonian in 2006. In 2007, started working at the University of Baltimore in various teaching capacities and is at present director of the Forensic Studies Program. At UB, Dr. Tomosa instituted a certificate program in document examination. Let's welcome, give a warm welcome to Dr. Tomosa. much. It's always, uh, it's always said that a good speaker talks about somebody else. So uh, You're a very good speaker. Uh, yeah, looking backward, uh, this is not something I had prepared a long time ago, but something very quickly. Uh, I've always been interested in historical documents, historical events. Uh, cold cases, in my experience, are about 20 years old, not quite 120, but we'll give you... We looked at some of the evidence that over the years, and we thought we'd just give some of some of my perspective, at least, on the uh, what we're what we're about to talk about the uh, some of the physical evidence that's been presented. Uh, looking backward, modern forensic science has really expanded like exponentially over the past uh, two decades. Uh, when I started in 1971. It was incredibly primitive. Uh, the, the Brits were the only one that actually had an established program that, that made sense. And we started copying that. Uh, under the auspices of the FBI, they pirated everything that was being done in the UK. Uh, and still do, as a matter of fact. But uh, what we're going to talk about, basically, is how do we look at things in the past with modern techniques? And uh, I love the time machine by Wells. Uh, I wish we could build one and go back and settle this all once and for all. Uh, This is a copy of the American first edition. It's different than the British first edition. 
which was actually serialized, but uh, it always fascinated me, and uh, I like looking back at historical materials. Uh, yes, somebody even thought of doing a time machine and going after Jack, uh, but uh, that was not a terribly good movie, all things being equal. Examining old evidence that is filtered down through time without proper provenance or chain of custody, as well as proper storage and handling, leads to what? Well, I could give you the answer right now, confusion. There are lots of lots of problems. The body, first of all, old techniques for autopsy, some of them really shouldn't even have the term autopsy applied to them, uh, presented problems. We don't know exactly what some of these things represent. The scene itself was not properly recorded. In fact, we don't even really know what some of the scenes were. And finally, the physical evidence, contaminated, missing, or just simply never collected. What can forensic science do? As forensic science stands right now, we can answer a series of questions. Sometimes we can answer who. What, when, where, and how are often very easily determined. Why is very rarely determined. I can pretty much, most of the cases I've worked on, which is numbers over 4,000, I could answer the questions on the left, the question on the right is just pure conjecture. Types of evidence that have been presented, we could talk about things like psychological profiles. Psychology, Social sciences, they're the very soft sciences. And they're soft because they can tell you what happens in aggregate, but very rarely what happens in a single case. So that I can tell you that somewhere in the city of Baltimore, somebody will die tomorrow morning. I can't tell you who. That's social science for me. Lots of time and effort have been spent on the letters and writing associated with it. Uh, inks of paper have come up at the actual writing itself uh, uh, as well as a few other aspects to it. Biological fluids, blood and DNA analysis, well, that's a number of problems associated with that contamination being the obvious and probably the most important. Starting with the physical evidence, I'd like to talk about the letters a little bit and the analysis of the inks. By the mid-1800s, mid uh, there was an introduction of coal tar dyes. The British had tons of this and didn't know what to do with it. So, they, so what they did was they figured out ways to dye fabrics, to make inks, to do all kinds of uh, drugs. Uh, all kinds of different uh, uses were found for it. And so they started adding it to some of the iron gall inks, which are kind of a pain to make in, in the traditional manner. And this is what a thin layer chromatogram looks like. This is a way of separating colored materials from well, one another, particularly uh, inks. This is a series of inks I've collected over 50 years. Uh, the last two on the right are uh, the same ink, just to show that it's reproducible. Uh, this is less than a drop of material. As you can see, it's, they're quite overloaded, they're quite thick. So you could, you could pretty much change a lot of, uh, you could pretty much examine a lot of the components of an ink sample. And some of these components are intentionally added, some of them are degradation products, and some of them just uh, are impurities. We can do that, this is normal light, which they kind of look nice and colorful. 
This is a very rapid analysis, but we can also do other things. We could hit it with ultraviolet light, which shows other different aspects to it. Uh, this is informative. This is at 365 nanometers. We could do transmitted UV, which is probably a little neater to look at, but we can also do 312 nanometers. As you can see, it looks different. This is 254 nanometers, again, which is very interesting. Again, a different approach. This is in the infrared, 1,000 nanometers. And if you notice in this case, one of the inks has something which hasn't moved. And that's indicative either of a highly polymerized material or a material which, um, but soluble in water, or it's just simply a suspended uh, carbon material. And so you could use this technique to determine the components of your ink. And by knowing the components of the ink, you can pretty much make some estimation as to when the ink was prepared or how it was prepared. And this is a, an 1840 uh, uh, receipt, just to show you, if you look in the infrared, pretty much all of it disappears. So if we find an ink that has this material in it, we know it's, it's something that's typical from a later period and would be consistent, say, with something from uh, after 1880, 1860, 1870, maybe, something like that. So you can get a, a grip on some of the material. We can look at other infrared wavelengths, but it starts to get complicated to explain. I just wanted this as sort of an overview. Lots of documents out there from the 1800s, early 1800s. It can be used as exemplars. I have a log, uh, a, a, a merchant's log that goes from the early 1800s to the late 1800s showing different styles of ink that have changed over time in the, in the US. So there's all kinds of information you can get out. These are black markers that show not too well, but show nevertheless, if you have soluble materials on the outer tube, you can see the, uh, they've separated and moved. And even if they were carbon black, there's some other materials in there. You can see that yellow material in there. You can see these two have soluble components, insoluble components. This one has a totally insoluble component, but something else is in there with it. So we could use that to characterize the material, even though we don't know, uh, we might not know much about the material itself. We could use some really fancy things. This is a, a gas chromatograph mass spectrometer. It's about a $75,000 tinker toy in our labs. And we, change, we use this, this to determine uh, both the separate materials and also to determine their chemical structure, which tells us what they are. Uh, this is the gold standard for analyzing drugs, if you want to do this in your basement or whatever. Uh, but we could use this also to look at different components of ink. If we have a really fragile ink, which is falling apart as we look at it, we could use a liquid chromatograph, which is a... Uh, a rather room temperature device which can uh, separate colored materials as well. Uh, we got one of those in the lab too. This is our forensic lab at uh, the University of Baltimore. And just to show that some things can be done with that device, the liquid chromatograph, these are ballpoint pen inks that somebody had, uh, had uh, separated, showed the components. The components show, again, the materials that they added to it, but over time you lose materials. And also, uh, you uh, have uh, 
some of the colored materials degraded. One of the things about uh, colored inks is that they absorb light. They absorb light means that the molecules are going to vibrate, change, rearrange, and fall apart. So you'll have impurities over time, even if you start off with a very pure material. Uh, that's important to know. So it's one of the ways of looking at, uh, at some of these uh, samples, uh, particularly modern samples. I tried another approach of looking at some of the inks to see if we could identify them in age. I took a 150-year-old uh, sample of ink. And if you notice up top, this is a density densitometer which measures the amount of material across the, uh, the writing. As you can see, it goes, it sort of goes in a, a little line, it goes down, flattens out, then goes back up and out, which means that there's diffusion of the ink into the paper. And on the right, you find a modern ink real quick. And as you can see, that there's very little diffusion. And so I started working on this project, looking for my Nobel Prize. And uh, unfortunately, uh, we could show that there was diffusion of ink into the paper, but we couldn't correspond that to age, which was something. Uh, which is something that uh, we, we tried to do. But it is one way of looking at whether something is an old or new document. Just something to think about. There are metals that are found in inks. People have been looking at those. Uh, if you look at the Maybrick uh, work, you'll find all kinds of metals present. Uh, I'm not sure how you would interpret that exactly, but um, we'll talk about that perhaps a little later. But iron is the most common. You have chromium, copper, vanadium, molybdenum. Uh, molybdenum is found in a lot of modern inks, uh, ballpoint pens, actually. Uh, these can be tested for by scanning electron microscopy, uh, a a using oops, back we go, uh, using a device called the ICP mass spec. It'll only cost you about half a million to buy one, uh, but you can determine quite accurately the amounts of metals in, in inks as well as their uh, different isotopes if they have different isotopes. Uh, it's hard to interpret what this means. Uh, iron is a very common material in inks. It is also a very common material in paper and does not tend to stay put. It tends to migrate around in paper, particularly with changes in relative humidity. So it presents some interesting problems if you're trying to interpret the presence or absence of iron. Uh, here's a nice fellow, who uh, Hoffman, who uh, forged lots and lots of American documents. Um, he was very, very good at it. He had a very good hand. He could imitate different types of writing, certainly imitate different styles of writing. Uh, was only caught when he tried to blow up a few people using bombs. He did actually make this, which has almost got away. Uh, this is a very rare uh, document, uh, except for some slight differences in the printing. Uh, this is, would be uh, almost indistinguishable from an original. But he made ink in a different and interesting way. He burned a piece of 17th century leather, so he had old carbon available for his ink. Uh, he mixed the ash with linseed oil and used the flyleaf from a book of the same period as the paper. There's lots and lots of old paper out there, all kinds of old paper, which you can use. So he wrote using this old ink. 
uh, to show, to age the paper even further, to age the ink. You let fungus grow on the paper, that's easy to do. Anything over 70% relative humidity, fungus will love to grow on your paper, particularly if it's cotton paper. Uh, produces foxy. To complete the forgery, put the paper into a glass spark discharge chamber. And so it's just uh, creation of ozone, which would imitate oxidation over periods of time. Uh, not quite the way nature does it, but uh, pretty good. There are lots and lots of forgers. It's not something that's hard or rare to do. To do it well is very difficult, but there are all kinds of people who have over the years forged lots and lots of documents. So even when you have a document and you're trying to authenticate, if you compare it to another document, you may actually be comparing it to another forgery. So you have to be very, very careful in looking at what you compare what to. There's lots of information about inks, particularly from the 19th century. One of the best books on the subject is Ainsworth Mitchell's book here with uh, Hepworth's contributions. It's from 1916. There are lots of books, lots of formulas uh, uh, throughout the literature. Probably up to the 1920s, there were a good half dozen books which would be very useful in trying to pursue and trying to get uh, information about classical uses of ink. Uh, and formulas. There are lots and lots of books on formulas of ink. And those are important because they show particularly the same materials are being used over and over and over again in different quantities, different mixtures, uh, some added, some subtracted. But there's no real rare materials that are being used uh, in that. Handwriting analysis is something that um, requires highly skilled people with lots of experience to do. It's very easy to, to look at something. Uh, it's very easy to come up with an opinion. Uh, the question is, how good is that opinion? Uh, just to show some of the types of writing, uh, they're all readable, at least most 19th century and probably going back to the 17th century are fairly readable uh, scripts, uh, cursive, which they now stop teaching, but Cursive scripts are pretty common. Uh, presently in America, uh, at present in America, the Palmer system and variations of it for those who were taught uh, cursive, but we're no longer teaching cursive in most schools. So what I learned in the 1950s uh, probably doesn't exist anymore. The way you compare handwriting is straightforward. You look at the form of the letters. How are the letters formed? Then once you've figured that out, you look at how the letters are stuck together. Connection of the letters one to another. And finally, as these come into words, the placement of the words in paragraphs. The way people write is not all the same. Uh, I teach a course introduction to doc exa document examination. And when you look at documents, people have all kinds of ways of indenting paragraphs, not indenting paragraphs, separating paragraphs, whatever the issue is. And then we finally come to some of the subjects we're talking about. The Ripper's notorious ha -ha, placement, the way it's set up. If you notice the indentations, the way some of the words are put together, some of the words are entirely put uh, uh, contiguous, some of them are broken up. 
All these are important in looking at the document to see if they were determined or run by the same person. And here are five examples of the signature of Jack the Ripper. Um, I think you really don't have to be a document examination, uh, examiner, uh, graphologist, if you're that weird, uh, or whatever, to say they look different. And they look different either because the person writing it is incredibly intelligent and really making it different, or it's just simply written by different people. Uh, one of the exercises I give to my students is to try and disguise their handwriting. And one of the things about disguising handwriting comes up with one of the characteristics of it is that you see it's shaky. It's not smooth. And some of these are shaky. Oh, that could be either in real insanity, drug abuse, or it could be just somebody who doesn't write very well. So drawing interpretations from it, uh, you always have a series of interpretations. It's very, it's very often you don't come up with a, yep, this is, this is what it has to be. Unsigned with a kidney. Uh, it's too bad the kidney doesn't exist. That would have been real interesting. Analyzed with modern DNA. Uh, that's the way life goes, isn't it? So the evidence is gone. My guess is it probably was unrelated, but nevertheless, there is no, um, there's no uh, dearth of suspects for Jack the Ripper. If they had a phone book in England at that time, I'm sure anybody in that phone book probably could have been uh, brought into it. Maybrick was considered to be a possibility uh, by some. Uh, there was a diary was written allegedly by Maybrick. And comparisons made both of the ink and other uh, aspects of it. Uh, it's a strange document, in my opinion. Uh, I can't imagine a man who had a lot of money writing this to begin with. And the second part of it is why would he write it in a book that he tore pages out of and started somewhere in sequence? Um, if I were a serial killer and really wanted to document my work, I would document it. I wouldn't quite do it this way. Some of the analysis of the diary inks were interesting. Some claimed to find nigrosine and others just iron gold ink, typical of the, of the period. Nigrosine is used without iron sulfate. And it was first reported in 1867 and it was in use by the 1880s. I've looked over, I guess, maybe 200 different formulas for these that have been published and known at the time. And um, my conclusion from that is that certainly into the 20th century, nigrosine was considered a cheap ink <clears throat> and was, had specialty uses. And uh, very, very few uh, writing formulas, formulas for ink, uh, use it. Uh, I'm not sure why. I think it's just because it was a cheap thing. Writing itself, uh, everybody knows this, and I'm going to go over it. Uh, what is the meaning? We don't know. What's the significance of the capitalization? If I were German, I'd be capitalizing the nouns and not the 
the verb or, or uh, other things. Uh, I'm not sure why it's capitalized. Somebody who was ignorant? I don't know. Uh, Dr. Tumor, it was in three lines as if it was poetry, and I believe the, that began the second line and Lane began the third line. Why was it erased? Uh, well, the, the, the theory is, uh, and I believe it, that uh, Commissioner Warren uh, was afraid there was going to be a riot against the Jews. I find that pretty hard to believe. Well, to follow up on what Chris said, it, it was written very near a building that was almost entirely Jewish. So I, I, I think it should have been preserved, but judgment call was made that day. <laughs> was it the same about marriage? Marriage means repent and leisure. I think the word erase and uh, <laughs> repent. Um, yeah. I, I, I think they're. I would almost be willing to believe that it's just totally irrelevant, and I don't even know why it keeps popping up, but it's one of the few things that's left that's relatively concrete. Uh, the linguistic part of it, um, uh, uh, it baffles me. I certainly don't have any opinion on it. And of course, how lacking the original uh, makes handwriting analysis meaningless. Obviously. Artistic considerations, Pat Cornwall <laughs> comments. Uh, somebody laughing. Uh, the one thing I admire about the book is he really dove into it. I have to say that. I mean, it, it's, that's almost totally immersion. Okay, here's a, one of the artistic things. Um, it, even as a cartoon, I'd have a hard time pushing that one. Uh, this one's a little better, I would say, but you know, uh, probably you could probably find something similar on the men's room walls of every toilet in in the country. Uh, I, I like the top part uh, that you know speaks of artistic talent, certainly. Uh, it's. The comments about uh, Walter Sickert, um, his paintings are, I guess, strange by our point of view, but they were not all that unusual. Um, I worked at the Smithsonian, and they have some very strange pictures there as well. Uh, I don't think any of them were Jack the Ripper, but um, it, it certainly is something that we're not probably used to thinking about. And the, it, it even popped up in Nazi Germany. Antarctica uh, Kunst, the degenerate art. There was an exhibition at the Smithsonian of all places uh, on that type of uh, material. Here's uh, one of the original uh, venues of it. This is Otto Dix's work. Uh, it was meant to horrify people. Uh, it was meant to be odd. Uh, Otto Dix couldn't possibly be Jack the Ripper because he wasn't born yet. But, but that, that may mean it stopped somebody, but uh, time machines are real popular at, at, at sometimes. But what was interesting is that you see these pictures and you think of you know, some poor degenerate. And uh, Otto was apparently uh, one of the really nicest people around. 
uh, did some beautiful pictures of his family. Uh, you know, it, uh, it would certainly be odd. Just uh, he's one of my favorites. Uh, <laughs> uh, this painting, if you could find it, you could make a lot of money. Uh, it's. Uh, one of those uh, that was disappeared uh, during the German era. Uh, they don't know whether it was burned up or uh, probably sitting in, you know, in Argentina somewhere. Probably. That's right. <laughs> uh, there are other things that come out of the analysis of documents, uh, watermarks, for example, paper analysis. Uh, as you can see, just a couple random things from our collection. Uh, people write, linen is good ledgers, uh, any upscale paper almost always had uh, watermarks in it, particularly in the 19th century. Uh, here's another with a little thistle in there, argyle. Uh, some of them got really funky. Uh, this is Diana. Um, and this is, a, this is an end leaf from one of the, uh, a book, 1899. So you can easily get paper that's, that's um, consistent with a particular era just by taking the ends of books out. So you could write a note on this thing or whatever. Uh, it's very important even to this day. The federal government has its uh, main documents uh, watermarked with dates on them. Uh, most, uh, most government documents do. And probably if uh, Dan Rather hadn't Xeroxed all those papers, he'd probably still have his job because <laughs> they were getting rid of the, the watermarks. That's the reason they Xeroxed the material and then destroyed the original. Um, something to think about should you want to fake something. It'd actually be very easy to do. I mean, I, I have scores of uh, reams of government paper uh, going back into the 70s, so I, could, I have old typewriters and you just type something. Have it, you know, uh, consistent with the year. Uh, this is again uh, a watermark. Uh, this is from uh, Cornwall's book, uh, Peary and Sons, dated 1886. That's dated 1887. Uh, if you notice, they're fragments. That one on the right is a fragment. Paper was not as common as it is today. We have tons of it all over the place. People use scraps of paper for all kinds of materials, all kinds of receipts, notes, whatever. So it's not uncommon to find fractions and pieces of paper with writing on it because it was valuable. It's certainly important to it. There are other ways of getting watermarks besides transmitted light. This is, these are easy to do. You can do it by beta radiography. And uh, in fact, you could do something as small as a postage stamp. This is from CCI up in Canada. And you could look at uh, watermarks on etchings, which are usually confusing because of different uh, uh, images on them. So you could actually look at the watermark without getting bothered by uh, uh, the interference from the, the etching itself. Uh, we did a study on paper. And what we find is that the cheap paper doesn't last as long as we'd like. Uh, this is wood-based newsprint. And what we determined, as you can see, a pretty nice little graph here. Uh, this is uh, measuring the uh, ability to deform the paper. This is the age of the paper in years. And it goes pretty far down. And uh, uh, by about 120 years, it's going to start to crumble when you touch it. 
Um, uh, Nicholson Baker wrote a book on the subject uh, called uh, Double Fold, which uh, actually is pretty good considering his other work. Fingerprints, yeah, you can find fingerprints everywhere. Uh, not necessarily good fingerprints, not necessarily relevant to your taste. Uh, there's a, a saying in the police department that they write at the end of their reports, smudges, smears, overlays, and unidentifiable ridges, and that pretty much means that we can't tell either. But, you know, saying that a, a, a document has the ripper's fingerprints on it is a bit uh, stretching things. DNA, everybody likes DNA. It's what they all want to do. You know, well, there's something called short tandem repeats. These are little places on your DNA where uh, nature decides they want to put two, maybe three, maybe eight, 10, 11 uh, different DNA, um, uh, different uh, bases, and you can do that pretty easily. So if you have enough uh, loci, loci, depending on where you come from, uh, you can determine which allele or which type is present. There's a statistical value for it, and so you can start doing statistics. You know, lies, damn lies, statistics. Uh, this is a random match. One in 837 trillion, which is more than the total number of people ever lived. So obviously this would be a, considered to be a unique match. Uh, the difficulty with DNA is it degrades. Different problem with DNA also is it gets contaminated pretty easily. So if you find DNA, the question is, is it relevant to your case? Is it relevant to what you're interested in? Uh, there's a whole system maintained by the FBI where they put down everybody's DNA that they get their hands on. And there's a considerable amount of it. There's ways you could use this that probably are not legal at present, but it can also be used to look at family members, look at uh, genealogies, so on and so forth. Um, in fact, uh, the Brits are good at this. Uh, scientists at Leicester have been DNA fingerprinting people and they found that men with uh, common surnames uh, shared the same or near same identical Y chromosome types so that uh, if we actually could find something that was unequivocally from Jack, Jack the Ripper, we could start running through DNA databases and it might explain whether he's from Eastern Europe or from America or British by nature or wherever he came from. So. Something to look forward to in the future if you can get an uncontaminated sample. Mitochondrial DNA, on the other hand, is pretty rugged. Lasts a long time, uh, but it's much, much smaller. And the properties of mitochondrial DNA are that it's very high number. We have only one set in a cell of uh, genomic DNA, but we have lots and lots of copies of mitochondrial DNA. So, chances of some surviving are much, much higher. It's maternally inherited, so you can at least look on a maternal line for it. And it evolves five to 10 times faster than nuclear DNA, which means that there's a lot more variance to it. So if there's a lot more variance to it, the chances of nailing down some are better. This is, the, this is one of the neat things they had in, uh, in Cornwall's book. Uh, if you're looking for DNA, where do you look for it? Well, 
underneath a stamp in a real good place. Because it's kept away from a lot of contamination, and most people in those days licked their stamps on envelopes. So if it actually did come from Jack the Ripper, that would be a good place to look for it. Uh, not too successful. What they found were some sequences, which kind of tends to indicate that it's from a person of British ancestry, which in London would probably not be too strange. And there are all kinds of books on the subject if you want to go look for it. A great introduction is Brunel's uh, uh, ooh, look back. Uh, Brunel's uh, short chapter in uh, Sacristine, Sacristine's Forensic Science Handbook. Good introduction. Uh, for those who want to dive into it a little bit more, uh, Albert Osborne's book, uh, it's very old, it goes back to the 20s, uh, has been reprinted many times uh, and it's available on eBay should you want to look. A great introduction is a, a, book, a series of books by Joe Nickel over the years. Uh, has a very good insight, a very clear explanation of a lot of things. I use this in, in, in my introduction to document examination course kind of like it. And of course, everybody has their own favorite uh, website. Uh, this one had led me to a number of things that I found interesting. I guess it's sort of looking at things. We look for patterns where there are none. That's the human mind. We're looking for things probably that don't exist. We're looking for meaning where there is none. And, and I've met very large number of murders over the years. Uh, not that I really wanted to, but sometimes there is no meaning, at least none that we could understand, and quite often meaning that the, the individual could understand. Whatever the science interpretation may bear, even if you get a test that's solid, complete, totally correct, two people will look at it and come up with two different interpretations. And finally, that's me. Uh, should you have anything, you can email me. I never give a phone number. Uh, students call at 2 and 3 in the morning since they think that's the natural progression of life. Uh, and I get enough crazy people calling me without adding more to the list. Um, but if you have any questions, please feel free to email me and uh, be very happy to uh, tell you what I know or tell you where to look or just admit that I don't know, which is quite often. I always tell students there's three answers to any question. Yes, no, and I don't know. And I don't know is probably more common than the other two. Thank you for your attention. I'm happy to answer any questions, comments. Yes? What exercises I give my students is to look at the laboratory reports on the ink of the uh, Maybrick diary. They differ. Now, often one can see exactly why. They've used different techniques of analysis. But one thing I cannot explain, two reputable uh, examiners, both using scanning electronic microscopes, one saying there is sodium in the ink, the other saying there is none. How did that happen? Sweat. Oh. Sweat would add it. Yes, of course. Ah, so the one which says none is more reliable, probably. 
Uh, I mean, that, that is a shrug. No, I don't Certainly, it's an explanation. In, in looking at the SEM data, um, well, I get, I get just the, the lab that doesn't have the sodium is Leeds, which operate. It was a husband and wife team that analyzed, whose analysis shows the sodium. So that could that could well be. I mean, it's there's a thousand ways to analyze something. You know, my mind is running through all of them at the moment. Um, sodium is probably one of the most, if not the most, contan uh, common contaminant in everywhere. Okay, uh, so that, it doesn't surprise me that it's found. It may actually be probably a little more surprising than it was found. Okay. Uh, how do you interpret that? There's paper making is not an antiseptic process. Uh, and so the, the water that you use in, in the 1500s, 1600s, they used rainwater. So it was very important to keep the crap out of it. Um, some places would buy streams, and their, water, their paper was horrible because there was iron in water. And iron really tends to accelerate decomposition of paper and other things. So, what would you, what would I infer from that? That it's a nice test. I'm sure it's correctly done. Uh, I just have no way of interpreting. And I would probably, if I were in the mood, challenge anybody who did interpret. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I went to a Jesuit school. You know, we can argue any side of an issue or not at all. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, I, that, that's not most of what they were finding there. Frankly, I think is uh, consistent with uh, material on the surface of the paper, either dirt, pleasantly called that, or uh, or some of the sizes that were used to, to make the paper more impermeable to the heat. It's not uncommon. It's amazing. I analyzed some newspapers from the from the America and the United States. That's where we are now, right? Yes, United States. And um, what we found in, inside the paper, we found uh, animal hairs, you know, rat hair, uh, wool fibers. Uh, you know, you know, pretty much anything that happened to be in the environment at the time. And it wouldn't surprise me that the, uh, some of the low end papers in the Victorian era had a lot of crap. That would be my guess. Thank you. A long answer to a short question. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm not sure that it's definitively proven that the diaries are fake. I know you said that on, on the slide there. I personally come from Liverpool and grew up just up the street from where the, uh, the neighbors live at Battle Creek's house. And um, it seemed to me that. Um, uh, you know, I'd known about the Maybrick case, the uh, trial of Mrs. Maybrick, and that she was sent to prison for allegedly murdering James Maybrick. And uh, it just seemed to me um, implausible that two such famous Victorian cases could be linked that way. But somebody had the bright idea that uh, Maybrick could have been the, the Ripper, and um, I, I do think that the diary was faked. But um, I, I'm not sure that there is 
actual scientific proof. I mean, I, I know one of the tests showed that it may have dated from the 1920s. Uh, the other thing is with the missing pages, it seems that that book was, you know, what they call a commonplace book or even a photo album because there's even um, uh, the remains of a couple of hinges from, uh, uh, from photographs that were stuck in it. Yeah, I have tons of Victorian paper. I can got iron sulfate, iron galls, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, uh, oak galls, and so on. We could just crank something up in the lab on a weekend. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I, uh, in my opinion, having not seen the original, okay, which mm -hmm. which is always very, 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 very tricky. Uh, if you look at documents, you always want to see the original. If you can't see the original, you're just, you know, flipping a coin in some intellectual sense. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it seems to me to be improbable. Yeah, I mean, I, to me, it doesn't even look like a, a real period document. I mean, well, there's a man who says he faked it. You know, he, he did forge it. So, well, I mean, you yeah, know, I mean, his confession is, is questionable, and he, he passed away um, recently, so we, we shouldn't speak ill. I, I have a Ouija board, you know, we can right. do it that way. Uh, that's probably the, the same level of intelligence in that. I, yeah, it's, I have no, you know, dog in the fight, you know, it's yeah. no position. Yes, sir? Uh, another question, this is about watermarks. Now, Paul Baird went to a conference which was talking about um, the uh, Patricia Cornwell work. And he was sitting by a man who had examined for her the paper of some ripper letters and the paper, paper notes were being used and written on by Walter uh, Sickert. And he said that one of the letters unquestionably came from the same batch of paper as the Sicker letter. Indeed, it would have been within, I think, something like 25 sheets of it, almost certainly sold in the same batch, which sounded astonishing and convincingly suggesting that Sicker had written at least one of the letters. We've been waiting forever for the further publication of this work and the proof of it, and it hasn't emerged. Is it possible? Is it possible? I was going to say, is I would like to see how it was done, whether or not it was or not. I like to know the technique. Watermarks, uh, unless by that, uh, yeah, I guess. I can't grasp that. Uh, if they said it was from 1600, maybe I would say, yeah. Because uh, they, they put little wires in the, in the mesh to yes. make the watermark. Yes. So if somebody knocks it or you know, the, the apprentice strips or yes. something with it, you might, you might have a little variation perhaps. Yeah. But by the time you get into the, the mid 1800s, uh, you know, the four veneer machines and everything, uh, you know, making wove paper, you have. Uh, you have people getting away from watermark paper, except for the high end. And uh, I'm sure they took a little better care of it. And when you look at these uh, watermarks, they tend to be very, um, very, 
consistent, actually. What changes is the location. When you see these complex watermarks, they may move something from one side to the other, or move it up or down, or whatever, to indicate the year that they were manufactured, or the, uh, or even for whom they manufactured. Some of these are made to order. So, you know, yeah, if it were made for Walter Sicker, okay, and that might be something, you know, but again, you know, uh, he buys 100 sheets of paper that are made for him. Well, they, they, they undoubtedly made more than 100 sheets. Okay, so they might have 120, the other 20 they, they wholesale out to somebody else. So, yeah, it would have made for him and somebody else might have had. So, I can't imagine any kind of Scenario that, that would say, you know, this is the batch and these are the letters. Thank you. I ask my opinion. Have I debunked anybody <laughs> sitting there assuming that? <laughs> no. I have failed. I, actually, I'm not sure about the. Um the watermarks being from the same batch because I mean as in the slide that you showed the uh, different year. One shows eighteen eighty six and one shows eighteen eighty seven. So how could they be the same batch? Well, at least for that one. Yeah. Now river related question about the Smithsonian being a curator. What's the one artifact that you get the most questions about? And the diamond here is a little symbol in the collection about the and more people ask about that than any single except for these students, you know, kids, you know, tours, you know. Got Kennedy's brain here. <laughs> we don't have it. <laughs> uh, I would have some nasty comments, but we're not. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, there, there are collectors, there are people who need out very strange things, you know, and there are little collectors throughout the world. People come from Japan to look at and uh, the only reason I know about it is I had an x-ray when the house was manufactured. So I took some x-rays of it. That's the only reason I would even know about it. But people come up. And what's the area that you find most fascinating there? There's a Java skull of ancestor worship. It's a human skull that has a piece of wood around it and a wooden nose. It's uh, something that you sort of ancestor you can go here and you, you know, after they decompose you with it. Stolen little thing, put it in your house. Some job. Just fast. When I was a little kid, the thing that got started on this was they had an exhibition on how to shake a head. I love that. I just stood there and walked with that. Yeah, I don't know. The cat's too small. But uh, yeah, there are infinite things. There's only a small fraction. There's, there's this big stuff of rhinoceros in one of the storage units. The guy killed it with a bow and arrow. You imagine killing a rhinoceros with a bow and arrow. So, I mean, that, that, you, you hear the stories of these things, the mines are like white. But uh, there's just millions of objects in there. Just, you could spend a lifetime walking through the story there. And anthropology has all these skeletons, literally skeletons. <laughs> I have all these uh, exhibits in there, and you know, I wandered down there, and somebody out on the table, and I'm uh, looking at the different parts of the world. So, yeah, you've got to go down there and look at the problem.
And that was Charles Tomoso with Forensic Time Machine Looking Backwards from 2016's Baltimore RipperCon. I believe we may be nearing the end of these conference talks from this event. Perhaps there's one or two more, but in any case, I'd like to thank Robert Anderson for making the recordings and thank the organizers Chris George and Janice Wilson for allowing the talks to be released by RipperCast. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by the website casebook.org where you can find dozens of roundtable discussions and presentations on Jack the Ripper and other topics of Victorian crime. One can subscribe to the show in the iTunes Music Store, and if you have any questions or comments, please find us either on the casebook.org message boards, or on Facebook in the RipperCast True Crime Discussion Group, or on Twitter at RipperCast. And I'd like to thank everyone for listening. We'll see you next time.